You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome back to the podcast with me, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to be interviewing Bram Connolly. Bram is a former Special Forces operative serving 20 years within the Australian military. Uh, Bram's also uh, a um, leadership consultant and has his own company and is managing director of Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. He's also an author and has authored three books, The Fighting Season, Off Reservation and a leadership book called The Commando Way. So I was fortunate enough to read uh, The Commando Way over the past few months and thought it would be fantastic to get Bram on the podcast and just talk about his perspectives on leadership, his perspectives on resilience, um, also on um, values and his perspectives on optimization, optimization of self and team. So this is a really wide ranging conversation and we speak about lots of perspectives around the current pandemic, but also from his from his perspective around um, high performing teams. And we just really dissect the book as well and some of the insights and lessons he's learned. I do hope you enjoy it. It was a fantastic conversation. We'll bring you more of these types of conversations over the next few weeks. We'll be back next week also with the pandemic in focus with an ED charge nurse. I do hope you enjoy. Send us your feedback and we'll catch you soon. The Australian Defence Force is a, is a system um, very much you know, similar to the British military and the Royal Marines who I, who I worked with quite a lot extensively it's a it's a real system so so for instance they looked after all of my you know medical bills and my my dental and and uh and and you know every yearly medical i had to do so i didn't know after 20 years i didn't even know that i needed a medicare card to go to the doctor um every thursday for 20 every second thursday for 20 years i was paid you know so i just got all these beer coupons so i had to I had to suddenly be reliant on making money. Um, the mess hall provided me with food for 20 years or ration packs, or I just stole food, you know, but, but realistically, I'm you know, joking, obviously, but realistically, there was just always food available. And so I didn't have to think about it. So I had all these things that, that most people in there, because I joined the army at 17. So I had all these things all the way through till I was around 40, where everything was just given to me. So Really, all of those sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, all of that stuff, you know, was accounted for. Other than, other than self-actualization, which I started to do once I left the Australian Defence Force. Yeah, no worries at all. I, I think that's there's a commonality uh, there, Bram, between people that you know can become uh, understandably so heavily institutionalized uh, from a prevailing institution which does cover all the needs because they want you to do one thing or one thing one thing only which is either lead or fight you know and, and not have to focus on those things but like you said the, the the deficit that can leave you with is can be quite profound i guess because subconsciously like you say you've you've, you've been relying on these systems all yeah. your life and then and then they're, they're removed from you and yeah and look we didn't even go into the biases of working in an all-male environment um, a primarily white privileged environment, which, you know, I say that sort of still trying to work out what all that means, but there's those biases to, to work through with what can, um, society expects now. And so some of that in the work that I do now in, in my own sort of leadership consultancy, some of that is really interesting for me because I'm sort of learning on the job as I go through some of these really progressive companies that I work with. Um, you don't even know that there's these biases that you're learning through 
through recruit training and then through deploying on operations. Um, but they're there. It's just now I understand it. You, you've got an established sort of business continuity theme. Um, so, and, and just when a crisis occurs, and I think this is something you, you uh, inflect in the book is, is around bringing attributes of business continuity forward into, into business uh, from the military perspective. Um, how much of that applies now, and, and, and where do you where do you advocate that business continuity within within private business? Right, yeah. So it's really important to make the clear distinction between crisis management and business continuity, because as a platoon commander of a special forces platoon and combat operations, it's really just daily crisis management. Business continuity is actually getting back to business as usual after the crisis. The, the two are separate events, but they're also, they're also intertwined, I guess. I think, um, you know, look, many leaders see a crisis unfold and then they, they deal with that stimulus without a long-term view of, of business con- continuity thereafter. This then sets them back in, you know, days, weeks, months, depending on the scale, the scale of the actual crisis itself Um, and conversely many business entities create business continuity plans without actually thinking about a crisis that led them there in the first place so some some fundamental requirements to ensure preparation and, and then also that that smooth transition from crisis to continuity it looks like this you know an initial planning then a war gaming of of how these things play out, so how the crisis plays out prior to the business continuity plan. Duty cards for all of those people that are responsible for certain aspects of the organisation during the crisis, and that's really important because you'd be surprised how many people start to respond to stimulus and they let their own personalities creep into where they should be doing tasks. So having a list of tasks that you should do in a crisis leading through and beyond failure and then through and beyond the crisis and then into the business uh, continuity plan. And finally, those rehearsals and then stress testing. So doing rehearsals for what the crisis response might look like. And then, and then peop, you know, getting your people, getting your team and actually testing them under stress to see how they're going to cope. And then including those findings in the after action review in the duty cards so there's a there's a lot to that i know but primarily what i what i learned from especially high-end sort of conflict is that no plan is going to withstand the first shot fired but what you can do as a leader is try and hold on to the plan as as long as possible so that everyone has a grounded footing of where they think this is going to go so they can make decisions without overwhelming the leader I think that's really important, but yeah, business continuity planning and, and crisis, they, they sort of intertwine. So you've said a lot there, Graham, and just unpacking some yeah. of that is, is, is fantastic around, um, like you said, around the hierarchy of <clears throat> the hierarchy of needs. So like you said, no, no plan survives first contact around two is one and one is none. So you have to have a plan B and a plan C, but you right, operate plan A um yeah. to, it, to, it, to its fruition or, or not if it's not work if it's not serving you or and or the team but yep. two, two is one and one is none and that that adage works across multiple domains 
in my mind. So that, that doesn't oh, yeah. just work among business continuity or communication modality. It works across domains of practice because yeah. actually you have to, I, I think as a, a diligent person, always have a plan B so that so you so you anticipate failure with plan a yeah and you have to you have to think about preparing for crisis management and preparing for for what follows as as time travel because what you're doing in inside a a nice comfortable environment you've got all your team there you're wargaming things but you're projecting yourself into the future and you're able to handle and talk about the stimulus that may come your way. And the great thing about that is when, when the rollerball actually starts, you're now able to get ahead of that because you've seen it in your mind's eye before. So you're actually, you've actually gone forward in time and then you've come back. And then when it actually does happen, you're, not, you're a little bit more resilient to shock than what you otherwise would have been because you've been there before. And I think that's really important. And that's why we war game, you know, that's why we would war game things so, um, you know, down to the, the, the smallest sort of element, down to the smallest degree of combat operations is because, yeah, okay, this guy gets shot in this position. Got it. We understand that. We know that we're going to Kazavak that person from here to here on the battlefield. We know what frequency we're going to use to call in the, the, the area medical evacuation. We know who's going to take that person's position. We've, we've got all these things. We've seen them. We've seen them before. So when it happens, it's not so much of a shock. And I think that, that a lot of businesses could benefit from doing that sort of shock stressing themselves prior to the actual real crisis. So I absolutely agree with you. And just one thing, I, we're going off script here, but I really find fascinating what you're saying. So from a graded exposure perspective, because you mentioned mm -hmm. graded exposure around, yep. around simulation of, of stress. And actually, from a business continuity and from a you know private business perspective, almost simulate stress so that when when stress comes to you in real life, you have an analog of of comparison. So when you're in the stress, you think, hold on. And this is again similar to wargaming, similar to medical simulation. Put the incremental stress on in simulation, so then when in practice, you have analogs of comparison that you can draw Great. from. And that you can then operate not only proficiently, but you can you can perform um, you, you can perform in a cohesive mm. fashion. Um, so one of the one of the key fundamental attributes we we teach is mm. around chunking information. So it's something you do quite well within well very well within the book. So you have a lessons learned section at the end of each each section, and, and I just quite like you to speak to that if that's okay, and just around how we operate within our cognitive short-term memory and cleaving the lessons learned because the, the summary points within the book are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, right. So let's get into it then. So after, after every mission in Afghanistan, we would do an after-action review. I, I found these to be the things that, that were sort of the capstone moments to, to the fighting action. So we would talk about what worked, what didn't work, the observations that we made, we'd then provide recommendations. Um, and rather than just, just reflect and daydream, we'd then make someone responsible for actually putting these into, into um, place. Um, so we'd know who was responsible and ensure we didn't make the same mistakes again. Or if we'd had a really great success, then we'd want to make sure that the other teams knew about that. And so we'd share that information. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't build silos. Um, and I, I came up with this idea that a, that a reflection is only a daydream unless we take actionable steps to learn from it. 
Um, and so we continue to do that. The, the first real key theme in the book, um, you know, do you want me to talk to, to resilience first and, and go from there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, uh, Jocko uh, Willink, I don't know if you've heard of Jocko before. Um, everyone's heard of Jocko. So he talks of discipline equaling freedom. And I believe he's right to a certain extent. Um, our daily habits can be, can be really powerful things. And I, I would reflect on this deeply, you know, but, but the problem is that habits themselves, they can only make us sort of soft over time. So one of the key themes of my own life, my, my business, everything really, is that I want to demonstrate to people the power of being outcome focused and not output focused because they're, con they're completely different. So outcomes are a theme-based effects, um, while outputs are time-based and structured, generally repeatable increments. And so an output, for instance, might be the launch of a client product. So my, my habits and behaviors, my thoughts and my actions are all focused on, on that, on that, you know, on that. There might be a need for me to work 72 hours straight, for instance, to meet that deadline. If I try and use outputs for that, I'll fall short. But if I prioritize my team's work to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, the mission, the outcome, then I have a higher chance of success. And so I would, what I would do is I would put in, this is my definition of done at the, at the end of this, um, this outcome. And everyone would understand it. And so we would, we would go from there. So I, I do think there is a place for habits, but I also think that having themes in your life is a really powerful, especially when you're overwhelmed with work, as many of us are. Yeah, that's fantastic, Bram. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more around, um, around the fact that discipline equals freedom. And, uh, but, but you're right, how you channel that discipline and right. how you polarize the team as well. So how you, how you uh, orchestrate simultaneous activity. <clears throat> we are big mm. uh, in critical care around orchestrating simultaneous activity on scene, but the bigger mandate is how you orchestrate simultaneous activity within business, within your, within a, your professional life, within a 72 hour time frame rather than a 10 minute time frame, and um and your ability to delegate as a leader is uh, or, or or not will differentiate you i believe as as to as to, as to being truly effective because it's only when you harness the team's uh abilities on capabilities that you really you really become effective so i i completely agree with you there but when when you're resetting your frame of reference uh and you, you speak to this quite nicely in the book, actually, Bram, in the Commando way, around sort of transcending the temporary aspects of physical and mental pain um, mm. and, you know, really pushing through uh, and being able to mentally transcend. Um, is, 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 is that something that you manage to convey to, is that something, a lived experience you have to go through or can you convey, can, can, can you infer and convey that transcendence to, 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 to others? Yeah, that's deep, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. I asked someone on my own podcast a while ago, um, a CrossFit athlete, I asked her if, um, sorry about that. I asked her if she was able to tell me um, what mental toughness was and if, if you could teach it. And she said you couldn't. I thought that was really interesting. I'm not so sure that that's correct, but I thought it was interesting that a CrossFit athlete, she just said, I've just got it. I'm just tough. You know, I think we need to make an important distinction between resilience and mental toughness. And 
you know, resilience is what you bring to the party right now. And it's based on, you know, small but really important parts of your makeup. Um, your genetics makes up a small part of your resilience. Not as much as people think, but it's there. It's there. Then, then there's really important aspects of sleep, hydration, diet, your current fitness level. So when an event happens at this very moment, so boom, event happens, all of these things play a part in your resilience. So small parts of your genetics, but how much sleep you had last night. I know that for a fact because I've seen guys under sleep duress. There's a reason we use we take away sleep from someone when we want to get information out of them, right? It's the first thing they do. It's the easiest thing you can do is just play white noise into a room, break people. So with resilience, there's sleep, hydration, diet, fitness, and that's all that you bring to the party right now, right? Your ability to not immediately respond to the stimulus and the ability to bounce back to a state similar to that prior event is all predicated on, on all of those things. So if I told you that your dog has just died and you weren't in optimal condition based on all those areas I just spoke of, then you would take it harder then if all of these areas were, were optimal, you'd still be upset, obviously, because it's your dog, right? But you would take it harder if all those other levels were low. Um, and a, an example of that is in 1997, I was, on a, um, I was on our commando course. We'd been doing amphibious operations. It was the, 20, the 25th of April, which in Australia is um, Anzac Day. And at 5.30 in the morning, they took us uh, into a, a dawn service to talk about the World War I soldiers that had been killed. None of us had slept for, for 48 hours. We'd been cold, we're hungry, we'd been in the bottom of boats, you know, getting thrashed around in the ocean. And then we were made to stand there in wet uniforms and uh, listen to the last post. And I can tell you, every single guy there was bawling his eyes out, you know. And I mean, if that had been any normal day of the week for me, you know, where you've got sleep and you've got hydration you've got food and you've got out of a warm bed you're more resilient you're less likely to be emotionally impacted by that moment um you know but mental toughness now that's different than resilience it's it's your ability to dig deep and to endure to persevere um grit so to never give up and this can be trained into someone i firmly believe that it's about building frames of reference over and over and over again, something that you can draw on and go, I've done harder than this, you know, and that can be great to fall back on, but it's perishable. That's the problem is the longer you get away from the moment that you've dealt with, that was really difficult, the less it's in your mind's eye and fresh. So if I, you know, put you in a plank position now for the next 10, 20 minutes and started hurling, a, you know, buckets of cold water over you and yelling at you and, and just making you go through all sorts of stuff, you know, and then this evening you went for a, a light 10 kilometer run, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to feel as bad, you know, but yeah, so it's all about that, that frame of reference for toughness, resilience, mental toughness, not the same. Resilience is what you bring to the party right now based on genetics, sleep, hydration, your, your uh, food intake and the like. And mental toughness is those frames of reference that you've got to draw back on. And, and for some people like myself, I just use CrossFit for that. Every day I get flogged, you know? And then, you know, if you're doing a Metcon that lasts for 25 minutes and you're almost throwing up every day, during the day, things don't seem so bad. 
Ram, could you um could you speak to so this the, the second theme is optimization <clears throat> yeah and, right. and you know ubiquitous optimization of your life um um and i say that in a very purposeful way because in the book you refer to something fantastic which i advocate which is around fringe time mm. so essentially that dead those dead increments of time which actually allow you to gain leverage on productivity so it's it's been a key lesson of mine but how um how did you use fringe time in the in the special forces and how mm. how does it still give you the edge now yeah yeah it's powerful isn't it all that dead time but there, there's a saying that life is uh, what happens in between the the big moments in your life it's all the little things things we usually take for granted um you know i'd, I'd sit there looking over a valley in afghanistan as the sun comes up you know, and we'd had a night of, of fighting on with night vision goggles on and everything felt really surreal. And then you'd sit there and have that warm cup of Nescafe in the morning and go, bloody hell, coffee's good. You know, that's the moments you live for, not the, not necessarily the high-end combat stuff. But there's an old saying, you know, time spent on reconnaissance is time seldom wasted, you know. And I think using free time to educate yourself is really important for optimization. So if you've got free time, I mean, I walk, I walk from here to home to 15 minute walk and I listen to a different podcast. I've got, I've got three or four podcasts. I roll through and I use that time to, to listen to that, um, to that podcast. So that's, you know, long drives are perfect for audio books. You know, I drove from Adelaide back to Perth and listened to Simon Sinek talk about, you know, all my reasons why I didn't have, um, and then bang for your buck, you know, doing an hour, a long, slow run, or even an hour on the exercise bike, that type of physical training. And that's great for listening to a podcast at the same time or absorbing content, um, you know, all those sort of things. So I think it's really important to try and maximize the, the, use, of your, the use of your time. Um, and then something like this, you know, I think is great too because there's a little bit of research involved beforehand. We've had, you know, we've had to listen to each other's podcasts and the like. So that's not dead time. So what, what I do, what I tend to do now is I, is I listen to a podcast while I'm in the car. I'll listen to that same podcast again while I'm on the bike. And then finally, I'll listen to that podcast in my office and I, and I will actually set aside some time in my diary to take notes of what that person talked about that made me sit up and take attention. And I think that's important because what happens is we're not listening to things to just, you know, have it just breeze over us. If something's held your attention, go and put it in a diary, go and put it in a notebook, use one note, whatever, but actually take the notes. That's good, actually, and and what that what that notions towards Bram is, uh, is really embedding that I think in within within your cognitive processing. So it doesn't just wash over you in one ear out the other, but you're really you you're you're, you're taking field notes, um, and, yeah. and and it's Lots that, that rehearsal of information which which mm. allows it to start to disseminate into your into your daily life. So I I, I think that's oh. a fantastic approach. Oh well, and and. You know, I, I think that something like just the notes on your phone, you know, I've got notes on my phone. I've got one for leadership, one for resilience, you know, one for optimization. And if I hear someone say something, then I might pull the car over and type it into my notes. Or if someone says a really good, you know, I heard someone say the other day, a psychologist say, hey, you got to be able to meet the moment. And I thought, wow, that's a really powerful phrase, meet the moment, because they're talking about changing your behavior, changing your personality changing your emotions in order to meet the moment with that other person from an empathy standpoint. I thought that's really a powerful way of teaching that. So I pulled over and typed it in and coined it and phrased it as my own. I regurgitate it and 
sell it in a program somewhere. But no, it's it's one of those things that's it's lifelong learning. You know, take the notes, put them in your phone. Yep. Just before we move on, that's a very interesting point. I'll wake up if at three a.m. and I'll have a mental to-do list for the day after. And if I don't capture that at three a.m., it's gone. And, and oh, no. so yeah, I yeah, I, I have to get my phone out and write it down. Right, even driving, I pull over. If I'm asleep, if I'm in bed, I have to because you you, yeah. you seem to lose it from this this. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. I was when I was driving along one day, I had this thought come into my mind of a great idea for a podcast, and so. I, I've just discovered recently that Notes has a, a section in it where you can press a button and hold it down and speak and it will type onto Notes. Yep. So, so I did that while I was driving. I held, the, you know, I held it down on my lap so no one could see me do it. I pressed, in, I pressed the microphone and then I, I said the title of the podcast, which was going to be the greatest and best podcast ever done. It was going to, you know, I was going to be the next Joe Rogan based on this. Anyway. Now what I have is shopping cart time machine podcast. That's what that's what it saved as. I have no idea what on earth that podcast was. I can't remember the thought I had, but I do know this, mate. I will be doing a podcast about taking notes and uh, knowledge continuum, and it will be called shopping cart time machine podcast. I, I, and and it won't be lost. That, that, that won't. those notes won't be it's lost. A lesson recycle them so bram um the next theme in the book is around leadership and you know we could as you know you've got a podcast on, on leadership you can do you can run podcasts you can run books you can run seminars just on leadership so this really is uh, a small a small notion towards the bigger concept that you cover well in the book um could you just speak to the power of storytelling to contextualize learning so uh, the only reason i ask this question is because mm. i notice in your book you both start with stories and end with stories. And they're a fantastic way, because we're so imagistic as people, to, yeah. to engage people. I always say, bring me a hook. If you're gonna to speak to me and present to me, there has to be a, a fundamental reason why people listening to a podcast, reading a book, yeah. watching a movie, should invest their next hour. And so yeah. I, I think it's not by accident that you tell stories and you start with a story, and you end the book with a story, but the, the whole book is peppered through, um, from the fundamental points through stories. Could you kind of speak yeah. to that? Yeah, cool. Strap yourself in, gang. Righto. We have been the second most successful form of habitation on Earth. We've got some way to go to beat 150 million years of dinosaur evolution. But other than them, second most successful form. Anyway, we were successful because we turned guttural utterances into language. So we achieved this through drawings on rock walls. We developed language and then storytelling. Humans, to, to our knowledge, are the only animal that can actually communicate an idea and have it form in the brain of the recipient. All right, so you know, if I go and draw a saber-toothed tiger, for instance, on a wall and say, hey, don't go out at night, kids, because of this, you know, they visualize. In fact, let me give you a better version. You ready? Strap yourself in. All right, so... Picture this, you're on a Black Hawk helicopter at night. It is screaming 150 feet above the ocean below. You've got night vision goggles on and you can see everything in hues of green and black. 
the instrument panel is aglow ahead of you. You hear the loadmaster's voice, 30 seconds above the screaming of the engines. And the wind outside at the same time washes across your face. You feel the aircraft surge up and your stomach lifts and forwards itself as it steadies above the bridge of the ship below. The ship is rolling with the huge waves and the swell, and you put a hand out into the darkness to grab the thick rope that you know is there. You lean out, grab the rope, and you start sliding down, grabbing it, choking it with your hands to regulate your speed, sliding weightless down the rope. You're not thinking of the 60 kilograms of body armor that's on your body, the weapons, the ammunition you're carrying, and then the rope disappears, and for a moment you wonder if you're going to free fall all the way to the ocean below, and then you solidly land on the middle of the bridge, and you're off, weapons up, lasers beaming and crossing, and you're in there into the bridge. Terminate the terrorists. You're moving like a pack of wolves, the smell of blood in your nostrils. So if you haven't just been in a helicopter with me, screaming across the ocean floor, reaching out to grab that rope in the darkness, sliding down, and then for a moment wondering if you're going to end up in the organ below or on the deck, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. But it's all about the storytelling to convey not just the story itself, but the dangers that are present with that story, the things that can stop us from being so successful as humans. And we use the storytelling to be able to put an idea into the mind's eye of someone's, someone else so that they can go forward and continue on with our legacies, actually. It's a really powerful way of getting your message across. So this is really interesting, Bram. You, you speak to a number of things here. So news fundamentally means north, uh, east, west, south. So news being the acronym for the dissemination of information. And we know within society, and you see this every day, so do I, the majority, 95% of news is negative. And the reason why that we have negative news is because, like you said, historically and evolutionary perspe perspectives, you wanted to know the negative over the positive because it was the right. negative that was going to kill you first. And it was the mm. negative, it was a saber-toothed tiger, it was the wolf, it was the bear, it was, it was all the negatives, but the negatives are, are what keep us alive. Now, yeah. my counsel to people will be, be careful how much negative you draw on and or believe, yeah. because daily is a triage. We daily fundamentally triage information that's in front of us. But to your point, we are imagistic. So I was right there with you in, in, in the Black Hawk. And, uh, and, and from, that, from that perspective, you not only capture people's attention, which is mm. an evolutionary concept, but you, but you then, like you say, draw out the negatives and or dangers into, mm. into, in, into the news. Therefore, it, it was an evolutionary concept to keep people alive. And so right. that's why I think, you know, a lot of people think oh, news is negative. It is negative. It's always been predominantly negative. Mm. And it's come from this, this fundamental concept of, of uh, when we were sat around campfires, you needed to know the negative who was going to keep you keep you alive. In in today's society, you certainly need to mm. be a purveyor of uh, and triage information appropriately. Yeah. You there, see this. Well, in, yeah, in, there is really, another problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah there, is, there is another problem with this, and and the the problem is, as well as the guttural utterances that have turned into storytelling through language, there's there's other things that came from the apes as well. Um, there's other behaviours that we have continued with now. For instance, you know, one uh, ape on the back of another ape, you know, picking lice out of its um, hair and then showing it to the other ape and cracking it in its between its thumb and you know and its forefingers are like smashing it up. That's a gift. That's actually giving a gift to another animal. 
Now, we haven't lost that tendency to do that, but we've replaced it with language. So it would no longer be cool for me to, at the water bubbler at work, to jump on your back and to start picking things out of your hair. But the behavior is the same when I walk up to you and say, hey, man, hey, buddy, have you heard? And then by inserting any rumor or any innuendo in there, I'm giving you a gift. I'm giving you that gift of knowledge. And so, and so that I'm doing that because I want you to like me. The same way someone, you know, an ape is saying, hey, look, I'm going to take these, these lice out of your hair. I want you to like me. I'm giving you this gift. And we continue to do this. And it's really bad in leadership because it happens a lot. And it, it's what undermines good leaders is their subordinates or their team members giving each other gifts of, you know, rumor and innuendo. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, Bram, looking at um, another attribute of leadership around high-performing teams. Now, we've, we've, I've had a few performance coaches on the podcast in the past, and they say, you know, they say fundamentally a high-performing team starts with a high-performing individual. And so to your mind, it's, it's, a bit, it's, it's, it's a slightly large question and maybe just summary key points, but um, what facets of a high-performing individual um, do you advocate, Bram? Mm. Yeah, look, I, I completely agree with whoever said that to you. Um, and I think probably trust would be the very first thing that is required to be effective, an effective leader, a high-performing leader. Um, you know, and this is gained through you know that trust, inspiring loyalty, winning a fan base. Uh, as Simon Sinek says, leadership is compelling someone to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Actually, being likable you'd be surprised. Being likable is, is a very, very fundamental aspect to being a high-performing leader, um, just being generally likable. So absolutely. And, and I think that, that team cohesion, uh, coercion and cohesion, actually, because you need to coerce the team and you need oh. to cohese them as well. So yeah, it's, it, there's, 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 it's there's a faux pas but it's not right. And I'll tell you why. And it's interesting that you would say that, but there's a certain degree of manipulation. Let's just leave that for a second. Manipulation. Everyone can sort of go, they can think about what they want, but you have to manipulate yourself to get the best out of yourself for your team. There's times when I had to get out of a vehicle in the freezing cold in the snow and walk around to others to check on their welfare. And that is a type of self-manipulation. That is, that is try, that's an energy transference as a leader. So there is, there is this benevolent manipulation. And it's the same as you talking to me about golf. I hate golf. But you're talking to me about, hey, I love this golf. This golf's great. And that's the thing that drives you as a person. Now, I want you to do something, you know, I want you to do something for me and I want you to do it because you want to do it, that may require me to manipulate myself and you a little bit to go, oh, hey, how was golf on the weekend, man? How was it? Heard you went around the course. Like, what did you, you know? And then I've got to listen to you talk about it for five minutes before I ask you to do something. That's all relationship building. And it's not as sinister as it sounds. It's, and it is, it does come from an authentic place. It's just the fact that you're putting effort and energy into those relationships, which is really important. So, Bram, could you speak to another common theme within the book is around situation awareness. And 
Interestingly, not relying on your own, sometimes on your own gut instinct, because your gut instinct can be full mm. of bias. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, all along in life, we are told to rely on our gut feeling, but actually don't realize, and you notioned to this earlier in the podcast around, around some of the fundamental biases you're not aware of, the unseen bias. Um, mm. Could you speak to uh, situation awareness and how you maybe cover off your blind spots, especially in the theater of war, because if you don't cover them off, the, the, there's, there's, there's probably a lot of morbidity and mortality waiting for you. But could you speak to the situation awareness and covering off blind spots? Yeah, so the absence of normality or the presence of an abnormality is, is how we can work out if something's right or not right. So the, the absence of normality or the presence of an abnormality. So the brain... The brain is an energy pig, as you well know. It uses a lot of energy. It's taking all the calories it can. And therefore, our brains try to make us conserve energy. And we, we do that by learning responses to stimulus. We try and build and recognize patterns to save energy. And part of that is situational awareness. It's important to understand those biases, but it's more important to understand the pattern recognition and being able to stop that pattern recognition to allow you to think clearly about a situation. So, you know, I, I think I went over it on the book anyway, around a child doesn't understand the sound of a truck coming to a brake at a set of traffic lights or a car going down through its gears or the sound of a, a bicycle, you know, slowing down the ratchet, you know, something like that. And then if you're a parent and you're looking at your phone, we get distracted by these little black boxes so much. And, and you are listening to the pedestrian crossing and it's, and it's going beep, 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 beep. And then it goes, you know, for you to walk and it goes beep, 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 beep. And you're looking down at your phone and you just step out because that is your response to that stimulus. And you're not aware of that truck coming or that bus who's about to run the red light. You're dead. So it's important to be able to break those patterns and understand that they're existing in the first place. And look, I, I'd use the world as your gymnasium, as your mental gymnasium. Walk around the streets and watch how many people are going through their life completely oblivious and just responding on stimulus um, with, with little to no situational awareness. And you'd be surprised how many of their brains are just conserving energy and they're not thinking. They're not thinking at all probably have no thoughts in the day. It amazes me. I just walk around the streets and watch. So we talked already about sort of triaging the hierarchy of risk in, in, and understanding the hierarchy of seen and unseen risk, um, both on scene, if you're a paramedic or indeed if you're in the military. Um, and, um, and you're right. So there's fundamental lessons you can pull through from from uh, the military and from transport care into, into daily life around triaging information in your mind and triaging the unseen and, and actually, uh, actually improving the feedback mechanisms that you get because actually none of us necessarily like bad feedback, but it's a great mm. teacher and it's probably a better teacher than, than, than good feedback. How have you improved your feedback mechanisms around your leadership now and, and your company's uh, leadership um, but for better or worse? Yeah. No, that's a really, really good question. And it goes to personality. 
And I heard a thing a while ago, which was if you're receiving feedback that you don't like, what, it doesn't matter who's giving it to you. And it could be the biggest load of rubbish. 1% of it at least is true, right? So, which means that it could also be 99% true, but 1% of it's true. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, okay. And I've had some, some harsh feedback you know, over the years and I've given some. Um, and then I realized that the strongest position that you could ever possibly have is actually a position of humility. Because if you've got a position of humility, then you've got room to maneuver. But if you go straight into a situation or if you go straight into an interaction with someone with I know best, there is nowhere to go unless, you know, unless you're about to eat humble pie, which I do a lot anyway. But, and that's why I've got that saying, you know, you can't get fat from eating humble pie. But it's better to not eat lashings of humble pie in the first instance. So I think taking feedback on, you know, with humility in the first instance means you have room to maneuver and at least understanding that no matter who it is standing in front of you, 1% of what they're saying at least is right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. There's something you've done. It may not even be what they're talking about, but something spurred that person on to give you that feedback. It's really important. Oh, what's the other thing? Fight the problem, not the person. I mean, that's just, that's, that's a, a, a life bloody lesson, isn't it really? So, Bram, could you speak to the fourth principle is around values within the book? And, you know, you speak to honesty, integrity as key values. Um, and you also speak to around sort of attention to small things. Now, these, are, these seem to be ubiquitous in a, in a, in a high-performing, um, auto-regulating, so almost homeostatic leadership. So it's, it's homeostatically regulating itself, which most high-performing teams do. That in my mind, you have to, because the standard you walk past is the standard you're willing to accept. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So the standard you walk past is the standard you're willing to accept. And, and, that, mm. and that is uh, around attention to the small things. Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, well, I'll go back to what you said first, the first question around honesty and integrity. You know, that, and and they're, they are key values that a leader needs to have. And I think that they then they then roll nicely into the small things that attention to detail because they are what makes up your character. And character is what you do when no one's watching. Actually, that's what character is. Character is the things that you do when no one's watching. We all have a dark side. We're all, we're all sort of yin yang evil somewhere. But the true, we, we only know our own true character, not the true character of someone else because they show us what they want us to see. So for me, you know, you are what you continually do. So excellence then is that, is that next five minutes. No one's watching every second of the day. So you want to you be able to develop your own character so that you understand what that character is. And for me, that, that, that next five minutes is excellence. You know, that's a simple statement that says, try and do everything to the best of your ability. In a, in a leadership context, you know, people know what leadership is, even though they can't generally articulate it. But if people are watching you and you are embodying that statement of, you know, excellence is the next five minutes, um, or you are the standard you walk past, then they instinctively know that you're a leader. They can see it. 
Our leadership's like pornography. We can't actually describe what it is, but we know it when we see it, right? So listen, to that point, Bram, and it's a fantastic point you make, is around you can embody leadership in all facets of life. So I really, just picking up on what you just said, you know, the, the, the soldier which has been recruited for five days or the paramedic that's just started his paramedic training and just come out can still be a leader because uh, people, can, people are watching you more than you think. Yeah, um, right. So, so that, that oh, look, you and that's okay. If you want to, if you want to see if someone's a good leader or not, you want to watch them when they're, when their kids are pressing their buttons, right? Because that's where, you know, if someone's, if a, if, if a dad, for instance, is actually any good as a leader, it's how they respond to that when there's no frameworks of authority around them. Now, to this, to the uh, point you made around, you know, the, the soldier who's, who's been in for five days, you know, for that person to get someone else in the team, in the squad, to do what they want them to do because they want to do it, they've only got influence. They only have influence. They have no other authority. And therefore, if that person is able to do that, for instance, hey, the, the boss has said we can knock off if we get all this done, lads. I know I've only been in the army for a few days, but I'd really love to go and have a beer. Let's get this done. If that guy has charisma, that guy or girl, if they have charisma, if they have a certain swagger about them, if they have values that they have shown are good and just, other people will follow them. They don't have the authority though, which actually means that they are a true leader at that point because they are purely using influence. They're providing purpose, motivation, direction, and they're getting stuff done. And that's my mandate to everyone listening to this podcast really is that you can embody leadership in every aspect of of life, wherever you are, because I think a lot of people perceive leadership to be something they aspire for or aspire to be, but actually don't realize you can embody it in your day-to-day practice and your Mm day-to-day life. And and quite rightly, as you say, Bram, in your private life, because your private life is, is, is an expression, you know, your public life is an expression of your private life because it's equally important what you do. You said this before, how you, how much you sleep, how much you eat, how, how you cognitively switch off. It's, it all bleeds into your public life, into your scene life. Therefore, yeah. it's equally important what you do and the leadership you embody in your private life because your public life is an expression of that. And people might only see the 10%, but the 90% is, is more, than, more than equally as, as important. So I think that's a fantastic, fantastic lesson there. Mm. Bram, could you um, just, you know, you speak within the book um, around opening your mind to new cultures and to uh, new terms of reference uh, with, mm. with, with, with new situations. So something I've had to deal with a lot from traveling and um, working in different, uh, different cultures, different countries. Um, could you just speak to, to, to putting yourself in a disadvantaged position of being unfamiliar with the language, with the culture and with a people group and how that can really change your perspectives and focus? Yeah, I'm, I'm really quite fortunate because my, my undergrad degree is in international relations, majoring in societies. So I was already going into the, and I mean, obviously it wasn't when I was at Somalia, in Somalia as a 19-year-old or, or Timor as a 25-year-old, but um, in later life in Afghanistan, for sure, oh, I had that to fall back on. And I already knew that you, you can't export democracy um, or capitalism. 
and all our cultures are different. And in that lays the rich fabric of humanity. I mean, would you want every single one of us to be exactly the same? I certainly wouldn't. Um, actually, I'd go so far as to say that if you're a leader and you, you work in and around other cultures, you know, um, and you view them from um, an, an ethnocentric point of view, that you're not going to be successful. Um, I think that, you know, it's really more, it's really wise to, like, for instance, you know, even American culture and Australian culture is different. Over there, they call it lobbying. Here in Australia, we call it bribery. And that's just one fundamental difference. And then if you go to the Middle East and you try and do a business deal, that's not going to be done over one cup of coffee. That's five weeks away, my friend. You're going to sit down and eat goat hoof stew and, and talk to... And and you're gonna you're gonna be exposed to things that may not necessarily be comfortable, but it's interesting and it's different. And we don't have the monopoly on on how things are right or wrong just because our culture, our shared values and norms are different. You know, and I mean that. I mean even even saying you you'll eat goat hoof stew is a broad generalization for the Middle East because that won't happen in some places. It'll be completely different. Um. So yeah, it's a, it's it's such a it's just like everything with leadership. It's being empathetic, being open-minded, but being inquisitive as well. Absolutely. And so to speak to that myself, I, I really agree because I think that inquisitiveness um, and that open-mindedness will, will allow you to engage and also as a leader, be able to potentially mm. coerce, coerce other other facets because unless you your your first step and you speak to this in the book actually Bram around the first step as a leader is is, is to listen and the fundamental respect gained from from listening and uh is it allows you to then speak into that situation um and you speak to a fantastic situation actually you had in the middle east whereby you had to you, you had to very subtly and eventually uh, overtly coerce a, a leader which which was operating within the within the the hierarchy and system within his own country and was wanted to retrieve the drugs and and mm. and and have control over the drugs now building rapport and building that 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 relationship allowed you to then allowed you to then sort of change the situation very much, very much for good. But interestingly, you notion towards active listening being the first step on on that journey. Could you just speak to that? Yeah, I mean, people listen to respond, don't they? Have you noticed that people people are listening because they want to know when they can interject with their thought bubble, and it doesn't necessarily make you sound particularly smart when you when you listen to actually respond to the question. That's the other thing. It's quite difficult sometimes. So you need to be able to take a step back and go, well, let me just have a think about that and engage people in a different way. You know, and and I but I think that most people listen to respond with a thought bubble that's already in their head of the bias or the situational awareness that they've built up to respond, the stimulus that they've already got. But I do think that there's it's a it's a lot wiser to get someone to say something maybe two or three times in different ways. And then to say to them, so the way I, the way I, the way I'm hearing this is you think this, is that right? And then that other person might say, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then you respond. 
And, and if you do things like that, if you make your words clear and your words mean something, you can't be misinterpreted and things don't, don't necessarily go pear-shaped for you as a leader. So, Brian, just looking at sort of the, the overall picture and you, know, you as a 19-year-old joining the military, you know, on your way to Somalia for the first time uh, and, and uh, retrospectively now from, from, from where, you, where you were to where, to where you are now, what, what, what would you say, what words of wisdom or otherwise would you speak to that 19-year-old? I love this question. I do. And, I, and I, I, the reason I love this question is I, I, feel, I feel like 20-somethings need this. That they need to hear this sort of stuff. And I don't know where I ended up being 47, but here I am after a life of service. And I still feel like that 20-year-old kid just smarter or wiser maybe. Not smarter. There's some bloody smart ones out there. But look, it took me a few years to work this out, and I wish I'd, I wish I'd known this sooner. Um, but I would tell 19-year-old Bram that positivity is a superpower and that leadership is an energy transference. And I think it's as simple as that. Ram, that's absolutely fantastic. And just, just, just as we finish off and come into land on the conversation, just one of the um, things I really got from from the book, and I do advocate that you go away and read it. It's Commando Way by Bram Connolly, um, released last year. Was just this, this, you know, this notion of de-escalation and de-escalating lots of different situations through through your communication and through through that transference of positivity and respect. Um, just, I suppose, finally, could I just could I get you to speak to the notion of using communication to de-escalate rather than escalate a a, a situation, and, and and maybe how you do that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's important, probably, to talk again about empathy and emotional intelligence, but to not look at it anymore as that sort of left-leaning, you know, sort of thing that it's been it's been made into. Um, you know, making safe spaces where team members can be valued and heard. That's really important. It's not as left as it sounds. And the reason for that is because if we're able to do that, if we're able to create those safe spaces where our team members can be valued and heard, we can then weaponize emotional intelligence. So your emotional intelligence can actually be your first, your first line, you know, the first thing that you draw on, not your long gun, not your pistol as your, as your secondary or tertiary. Um, the emotional intelligence is actually re- responding to things from a position of empathy first. There's always, there's always room for violence later, but uh, come at it first from a, a, a position of empathy. And you know, we talk a lot in my business about um, a superpower. You know, one, one of those other superpowers of leadership other than positivity is the invisible backpack and being able to view that invisible backpack that someone might be carrying, you know, and of all the profound experiences that they've had. So they're not necessarily responding to you in a bad way. They're responding to something that's happened in their life yesterday or whatever. Um, you just need to be empathetic towards that. So, Bram, if people were to uh, find you or, or look you up on the internet, where, where would people find you and all your resources? Then? Uh, yeah, look, warrior, warriorU.australia on Instagram or Hindsight Leadership on Instagram and um, you know, bram.connolly is, a, is the website. Simple as that. Fantastic. Bram, listen, thanks for your time today. I really enjoyed your insights. Love speaking to you and, uh, and just your engagement. So thank you. Thanks, mate. Really appreciated it. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.